0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Man, this is so cool. Love this doing with all the burnt fire, smoke, fog? Isn't it good to breathe some fresh air? Man, Portland got hit hard. I I, I was navigating COVID pretty decent. Uh, I could still walk the trail, which which is right around the corner from my house, and then get home, shower, and then start my day in my front yard under my tree. I had great shade, so it didn't hit me too hard. Uh, But when the smoke hit the city and the air quality changed and you had to stay inside, I went stir crazy. And all I did was eat, drink, and read. So it's good to breathe some really good fresh air. Of course, this is one of my favorite churches. I love, well, Ben is one of my, I always tell people Ben, Oregon is my favorite city outside of Portland. And Antioch is one of my favorite churches outside of Portland. So give yourself a hand. (laughs) All right, enough of the niceties, let's get to it. Um, man, I, I'm, not, I'm not technically a pastor anymore in a pastoral kind of sense, because I left Imago East Eastside Uh, not as a member, but as the lead pastor, so that I could spend most of my time working for an organization that I started eight years ago called HALA, which is a culturally specific organization that believes in the power and potential of black and brown youth. And so we've been in the schools, like I said, for eight years, we're in a number of districts. We have about 60 kids that are matched with our college age and working professionals. And so God's been doing an amazing work. in the east side of the community. And so it's always, you know, I'm a little rusty, so bear with me. I haven't preached in a good long while. So when Peter gave me this text, it kind of got me out of my work and gave me some time to really focus on what I believe this passage is saying. So to understand this passage, or let me put it this way, to be a good theologian, you gotta be a, a good historian. So when you see this exchange between Jesus and this teacher of the law, you've got to understand it in its historical context. What this teacher of the law is is asking Jesus isn't what we traditionally have been taught, that this is what Jesus is asking. This parable that Jesus goes into in terms of what it means to be a neighbor is is more than a moral fable. It's not just some kind of bedtime story. It's not a lesson on how to be a good neighbor to people you bump into every life. It's much more radical, much more nuanced, much more challenging than that. So when this teacher of the law comes to Jesus and he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's actually asking two questions. The first question is a question of survival you got to understand, historically, Jews in the first century were oppressed. They were crushed by the state. Their land was stolen. They were under occupation. Their institutions have been taken over and had been fundamentally changed. Their culture that was so public is now shoved into a more private space. They were forced to capitulate to the occupier's culture fear their gods, and most importantly, revere their emperor. So when this Jewish teacher comes to Jesus, who is a Jew just like him, he's really asking a question that goes deeper than what happens to you when you die. He's really asking him a question about survival. He's asking Jesus, like him, how are you handling all this? How are you surviving this? What are the strategies that you're employing to deal with being under occupation and oppression? He's really wanting to know, how do we survive being under occupation in order to experience all that God has promised? And so the bigger, deeper, most fundamental question is how are you surviving this? The other question that he's really getting to, is not just the question of survival, he's getting to actually the question of sides. Because it says right here in verse 25, it says on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to Jesus to test him. And so he's testing Jesus. He wants to know what side are you on? Where's your allegiance? Who are you with? And where do you draw lines? When the buck stops, where does it stop? Are you with them or are you with us? Think about that every time a religious leader comes to Jesus, just about every time they come to him, they're always testing him. They're always wanting to know what side he's on. They're always wanting to know what his allegiance are. They're either wanting to test him in terms of his character or his commitment. They either want to know is he the true savior or what side is he on. Either they want to know is he true, is it true about his deity or where does his loyalties lie. And so when he encounters his religious leaders, they're always trying to get him to draw a sand in the line. And you understand that because we live in a society right now where there's a lot of pressure on us. There's a lot of pressure that we feel from other people, other cultures, and even in our own community. Where do we draw the line? Where do our allegiance lie? Who are we more committed to? And so we find ourselves being pressed on all sides. We find ourselves being challenged in terms of our theological commitment. What side are you on theologically? We find ourselves being racially challenged. What side are you on racially? Do you support majority culture or minority culture? We find ourselves having to draw lines between where do you stand politically? And most certainly, where do you stand nationally? And this is exactly where we find ourselves today in our times. Are you Republican? Are you a Democrat? Do you support Trump? Are you with Obama? Are you about Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter? Do you support Black Lives Matter or are you about the police force? Are you about defunding police or defending police? Are you a socialist or capitalist? Are you with Antifa? or are you with the alt-right? Do you watch CNN and NSNBC or do you watch Fox News? What side are you on? What allegiances do you hold? What affiliations are you a part of? And Jesus comes in this parable to solve this question. And he frames it in the parable about what does it mean to be a neighbor? Because I want you to understand what it means to be a neighbor is far radical than we ever imagined. I was... uh, I, I, a bunch of my kids in Hollow were going to the protests and I, I was seeing them on a lot of the social media outlets. And so I felt like, hey, let me go out there and support my kids. We have about 200 kids in our program. There was a number of them out there with bullhorns and, and protesting and, and going for it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm the executive director of the organization. A lot of these kids are part of our work, so let me go out there. So I started spending time downtown at Portland active protests supporting our kids. About six weeks in, Christianity Day called me to do an interview about what I'm seeing at the protest. The editor that was interviewing me asked me a question. He goes, don't you feel uncomfortable being at the protest? Seeing even last night, I heard that they put a piled up a bunch of Bibles and burned them. Don't you feel a little uncomfortable as a pastor and a Christian to be a part of something where they're burning Bibles? I thought to myself, that's a very good question, but that is a question about what side or affiliation I'm on. And right there in the moment, I realized and said to the editor, I said, I get probably why they're by burning Bibles. Many of them do not go to church. And the church experiences they ever had were very racist and misogynistic and imperialistic if that is all I've ever known about Christianity, I'd probably burn a Bible too. That's why I'm here to be a witness, to show them that the gospel is contrary to everything they think it is. So Jesus goes on. I mean, so, the, so the story goes on. It says, but when he wanted to justify himself, he asked him. Who is my neighbor? I'm sorry, verse 25. It says, on one occasion, the expert of law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? So that's the beauty of Jesus. He answers questions by asking more questions. And then he said, love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, I have realized that you better be careful when you ask Jesus a question. Because if you do, you might find that you might not like the answer. And so Jesus says, all right, let me explain to you who your neighbor is. So he goes into verse 29. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And and in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, the Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. And when he saw him, he took, uh, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went on, he went to him and bandaged his wound, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took him out, uh, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense you may have. A Jewish scholar once said, in order for you to understand the parable, he said, in this one in particular, Jesus might have told the parable to encourage listeners to ask themselves, what is the most important thing in their lives? How can I say I love my neighbor if I don't know what the most important thing in my life is? So when you come to a parable, you gotta understand that this parable has a lot of different meanings to it. I think what happens oftentimes in our sort of evangelical hermeneutic and how we understand the scriptures, we always just want to assign one meaning to the text. And the beauty of Jesus is is that when he tells parables, they have multiple meanings and they're extremely layered and you can walk away with a lot of different gospel uh, emphasis or gospel truth in it. So when you look at this parable, you can see it three different ways. You can see it on the theological level and you can hear the traditional interpretation of this text or this story as Jesus saying, you know, you, you got to understand that the man that's, that's beat up and discarded And the Levite and the priest walk right past him, but the Samaritan stops and serves and loves him and takes care of him and pours oil and wine and puts him in an inn and cares for all the things that he needs. And I think sometimes what we realize, what we don't realize, is that we often put ourselves in the center of the story. We see this as somehow Jesus is either trying to say that we're the priest or the Levite or we need to engage the Samaritan. And actually what this parable on a theological level could be saying is that is that this man that's beat up on the side of the road is us. And yet here we have the Samaritan that is extending grace who happens to be an enemy, puts him in the end, takes care of his wounds, pays for all of his service. That is exactly how God encounters us. We have been battered, bludgeoned, bruised by life and sin and God comes along as an enemy and loves us and does for us what we can't do for ourselves becomes what we can't become for ourselves, meets all the standards and requirements of the law, takes God's wrath and punishment, drinks it all the way down to the drags. He does what we can't do, and he loves us in spite of ourselves because there's nothing we can do to get God to love us more, and there's nothing we can do to get God to love us less, and that is the infinite grace of God, his work in our life. So on a theological level, many... Scholars, me, theologians, and many pastors have interpreted the scripture to say that. And most certainly, it doesn't say anything less than that. But for others, they have looked at this passage and they looked at it from a racial lens. And they'll say, you know what? Think about what Jesus is saying. The question isn't who is my neighbor. The real question is to whom must you become a neighbor? Most people in the first century understood a neighbor to be limited to members of their own nation. And so for some people, you've heard the teaching that to be a neighbor is to be like that Samaritan, to be willing to cross the divide, be willing to live out the gospel around people that you're uncomfortable living the gospel around. It means going to the other side of the track. It means ministering to other communities. It means stepping outside of your own cultural norms and being part of something different than what you've always known to be true in your own gospel experience. And so anytime we come to this parable, we either look at it from a theological lens or we look at it from a racial lens But this morning, as I unpack, and I'm not going to spend much time, I want you to see it from a political lens. In verse 30, it says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Now, what's interesting is, is the word robbers in the New Testament is used eight times, seven of those eight times the word means to steal from someone the only time the word robbers is used different is in this verse the word robber here is different than to steal from someone the word robber in the greek literally means to be a uh, to be dissident to be an agitator to be a zealot an insurrectionist for our own modern terms to be a protester and the Greek word right here where it says, when he, was attacked by rob- when he was attacked by robbers, the real Greek word means he fell in with them. Meaning that this is not some guy that was going from, from Jerusalem to Jericho, minding his own business, and he gets jumped and robbed. This means that on his way to Jericho, possibly on his way home from worship... He bumped into some insurrectionists. He bumped into some people that were distant. He bumped into some people that were zealous. they were anti-Rome, and he fell in with them. Which means he may have joined up with them. He may have been a part of whatever they were conspiring. And who knows exactly what happened? I don't know. But maybe his loyalties were challenged. Maybe he wasn't as radical as they thought he was. And so he gets killed, but whatever it is, this man most certainly is not innocent. So the one person that should be walking past him is a Samaritan, and what do I mean by that? Well, in the book by Alan Storkey called Jesus in Politics, Alan Storkey says that oftentimes when we talk about the Jew-Gentile, I'm sorry, the Jew-Samaritan relationship, we always talk about the ethnic conflict. We don't understand the political conflict. In his book, he said that the Samaritans weren't just hated ethnically by Jews, but they were hated politically because Samaritans were mercenaries. They were soldiers of Rome. They were set up to preserve law and order. They were policing Jewish folks. And for Jews, they did not like that. Because a Samaritan mercenary was being paid to keep Jews down. So if anybody was going to be passing by this guy who was collaborating against Rome, it should have been this Samaritan. Because he wasn't being paid to be a sympathizer. He was being paid, he was being paid to keep this guy in check. What does the Samaritan do? What he does is, is he uses all his power, all his authority, all his influence that's been given to him by Rome to lift this man up. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that that eternal life in the kingdom of God is about being this kind of neighbor and showing this kind of mercy. Can you imagine this Samaritan who happens to be a soldier for Rome? Can you imagine the dilemma it puts him in? It would be like you going to Portland, going down to the federal building and you happen to be part of the, the police force And you see agitators, protesters throwing cherry bombs from the street between the fence and the federal building. And all of a sudden, later that night, you see one of those guys on the street beat, tattered, who's actually trying to exploit you as a police officer. And you walk by him. What do you do? What the Samaritan was doing was risky. The fact that he's picking this man up, paying for his hotel, pouring wine and oil over him, and paying for his care was radical. And you know he works for Rome because he paid some denarius. Where do you get denarius from? From Rome. So this man is using the resources of Rome to show mercy to a person that had been oppressed by Rome. So what does it mean to be a neighbor? It's hard to be a neighbor when you're taking sides. It's hard to be a neighbor when you're more beholden to your politics than you are to Christ. It's hard to be a neighbor and live out the gospel when you really don't understand really what Jesus is getting at at this, this. Parable. In the beginning of it, they're talking about loving God, neighbor, and all that. And at the end, they're talking about mercy. And what is this man doing? He sh- Jesus is showing what love looks like. It looks like this Samaritan mercenary loving someone who doesn't deserve to be loved. It looks like this mercenary is showing what love looks like in action by being merciful. So what does it look like for you? When we live in a culture that is more driven by power than justice, justice is about mercy. Power is about force. And Jesus is calling us to be neighborly, which means that we are called to cross divides politically, religiously, and ethically to encounter people in a way that we've never been called to encounter before. And then you can imagine that this parable means a lot of different things for a lot of different people, for people that are in power, that are of majority culture. That means that you are gonna have to risk things. But what it also means, you can imagine for the Jewish mind, the Levite and the priest and the first century listeners that are listening to this, you can imagine the disdain they had for this parable because for them, They didn't like anybody in power. And what Jesus is saying is to be a neighbor for a minority, for a BIPIC, for a black indigenous person of color, is to be willing to come along someone that is truly trying to be an ally and to love them. And most first century Jews had a problem with that because they had never seen anybody in power be benevolent toward them. And they were called to live in that kind of Radical neighborness. (laughs) So what does the gospel look like for you? I am black. I am evangelical. I am center left. I go to mostly white evangelical churches and I constantly get questioned by my own community. Why are you there? I'm there because of this passage. I have great friends that are police officers. Why do you have friends with police officers? My community says because of this passage. I'm called to be a neighbor. My first and foremost affiliation is with Christ. But that means as a minority in majority culture, there's a lot of shifting that I have to do. There's a lot of things that I have to risk to operate in that space, but that's what it means to live out the kingdom. For majority culture, what does that look like for you? This Samaritan, who's a mercenary, serves on someone, serves someone, pours oil, wine, and shows incredible charity, shows incredible mercy, that he shouldn't, and uses all his resources to meet this man's need. So what interpretation is the right interpretation? My my theory is this, all of them. God does what we can't do. God loves us when we don't deserve that love. He becomes what we can't become. He stands in our place when we deserve God's judgment because that's the gracious God in our life has been hidden in him. God has called us to bridge that ethnic divide, to build relationship with people different than ourselves, but he also politically challenges us to live different, to live upside down. To understand that when we live out the gospel, our affiliations, whether they're religious, whether they're cultural, or whether they're political, are far more nuanced than any of the sides culture wants us to take. It's not that clean and easy for us. And if it is clean and easy for you, my friend, you don't get the gospel. Jesus came to this earth to die. But not only to die, he came to this earth to arrange relationships fundamentally in a way that the society could not understand. The religious community struggled with him. They couldn't understand the people he ate with. They wanted him to take allegiance uh, for Caesar, he would not. He was way more nuanced than that. Jesus was the good neighbor, right? He bridged the divide. Although we were enemies with God, although we thought different than God, Jesus bridged that gap for us and he calls us into that through the cross. He calls us into that through the cross because on the other end of it is a resurrection life into a brand new community, a new humanity, a new way of thinking, a new way of living that will cost us everything the same way it cost him everything. So when we talk about being a neighbor, what does the neighbor look like for us? What does it look like on a theological level? What does it look like on an ethnic level? What does it look like on a political level? I can tell you the Samaritan, it probably cost him everything to use all the resources and privileges that he had of the state on someone who had been persecuted and oppressed by the state. What does it look like for BIPICs, Black Indigenous People of Color? I'll tell you what it looks like to realize that you are called to love radically and mercifully, and to build relationships in a society that says they don't deserve that kind of relationship with you because of the historic system and institutions of oppression. And yet God is calling us all out into a community to live in this kind of radical neighborliness. And he calls us out of it into Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your work in our life. I thank you that you're a gracious God. I pray God today that you would challenge us to live differently. That we would wrestle with the ideal of neighborliness. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? That you would challenge our political affiliations and how we engage others in this moment of unrest, in this moment of protest, in this moment of just social racial upheaval. God, I pray that we would be able to enter this in a very different way. that we learn how to love the way you are calling us to love, to be merciful because you have demonstrated mercy to us, to love because you've loved us, to bridge the gap because you bridge the gap with us, to come alongside us because you are calling us to come alongside others. I pray for your grace this morning to do what we can. Today, God, as we come to the communion table, I pray that we would begin to see what it represents that the veil was rent. that you offer a new, not only salvation, but you offer a new community, a new people that live subversively, that live upside down, that live out of a kingdom value system That is far more complicated than the simple systems of how we categorize and silo everything about our life to make sense of it. The gospel blows all that up and doesn't let us make sense that way. So help us live upside down this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.